Yeah, g'day, mate. You're listening to a Radio 191 FM podcast. Hello, and welcome to our People's Choice episode of Does This Count as Study? Today we are joined with Sean Fitzsimmons. Welcome. Yeah, hello. Thank you. Great to be here. It's great to have you. And we're finally back in the recording studio, not over Zoom, which feels a lot nicer, a lot more intimate, a lot more um, exciting. Good to be back. Yeah. Yes. And thank you so much, Sean, for joining us today. How are you going? You're welcome. Thanks for the invitation to come along. Looking forward to it. Yeah, so... Um, Sean was a people's choice person. He was geography was the most um, the most chosen out of all the subjects in our poll. And my flatmate actually really like pumped out and was like, "Sean's awesome." Actually, I've had a couple of people say that I've, I've heard about you before and your your crazy tops. But um, um, because of that, would you like to give a wee background about yourself? How you got to where you are today, Otago? Yeah, sure. Um, I uh, guess I started out life. Uh, um, studying physical geography and the landscape at school um, back in Christchurch. And I had a particularly good teacher uh, that uh, led me to the choices I made when I went to university. So I went to the University of Canterbury and I studied geography there with a bit of geology and uh, smattering of art subjects as well. Um, and uh, I guess when I was there as an undergraduate student, I was had a couple of inspirational uh geography lecturers and some really excellent geology lecturers as well and I thought gee that looks like a pretty cool job Um, so I stuck with it and took the opportunity when it came along after I worked for a couple of years for the Forest Research Institute I took the opportunity to start a PhD in Australia at the University of Tasmania then I worked for a little while there and then I came back to uh, New Zealand in 1991 um, and uh, weirdly, it was my first visit to Dunedin in 1991, and I've been here ever since, having a great time. Stole your heart. You got it back. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, I, why was it so attractive? Like, what made you stick? Uh, at, at Otago? Yeah. Um, I think uh, when I joined the department back in the early 90s, it was uh, a really supportive place and a in a kind of passive way, you could, you went. I wasn't really directed into what I uh, had to do. I, I had latitude to develop courses from scratch, entirely new. So it was quite a creative process, and I could do it the way I wanted to do it, so long as it fitted into the framework in the department. Uh, yeah, the university was a much smaller beast then, uh, way fewer students, uh, and yeah, I was able to experiment with what I was doing. And of course, I had the physical landscape out there, which was um, a fantastic experimental landscape in which to work, uh, and both in Antarctica, where I worked for quite a while, and in the Southern Alps. So it's uh, the, all of those things kept me in the game. And I absolutely have to say that I... the the part that I enjoy most, even though I enjoy my research activity, is probably the teaching activity. I really mm. enjoy uh, teaching students, particularly in first year, I think, and um, I guess trying to inspire them uh, about the physical landscape and uh, try to explain how it works. And And it's great to see people coming along with an understanding uh, of, of those landscape processes. So that's yes. what keeps me in the game. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, yeah, we've heard a lot from outsourcing and people and stuff that have been really interested in geography and learned a lot from you and from the topic. One of the things that we were asked about is lake sediments. You might 
we've heard you've done some research on this, um, some leading problems that are kind of affecting yeah, lake sediments around Aotearoa, around maybe Queenstown area or the Dunedin region? Yep, so I guess my involvement in using lake sediments as a way of looking at the landscape is twofold at the moment. Um, I, I use them to work in a, a slightly deeper geological time frame, and by, but it's, you know, a geologist wouldn't call it deep time, but it's not the present. So I'm working with the last three to 5,000 years or so and looking at the changes that are recorded in lake sediments as a way of interpreting how the landscape has changed. And so that's focused around um, mainly the drivers in mountains are seismic shaking, which is episodic. So, you know, the last time, for example, that the, the Alpine Fault ruptured in New Zealand was 1717 AD. So 1717 AD, it's a bit of a problem in terms of knowing what happens to the landscape. Um, because there are very few people living on the West Coast. It's Maori who are living on the West Coast. And there's a little bit of an oral history there, but if you really want to know about what's happened in that landscape, you have to have a way of interpreting the past from the sedimentary record. So that's where we use lake sediments to interpret the past. So we now have a fairly good idea of what actually happens when there's a seismic shaking event, a magnitude 8 event on the Alpine Fault, for example, when we know yeah. it ruptures all of the way along the West Coast. That's kind of been a topic at the moment and one on the news. It's been the topic for a wee while, the Alpine Fault. Do you know much about that? We haven't actually talked about that recently, but... Um yeah, do you know anything about that? Or? Oh, yeah, a little bit about it. Um, I, I, as I told you um, just before, um, the, what the rupture's like is not known because it ruptured so long, such a long time ago. Um, and, you know, if you want to understand what it's going to do in the future uh, in terms of the landscape, the, the best option you've got is to see what's it's happened not. in the past. So now we now know on the basis of our work over the last... 10 years or so, is that uh, when the um, uh, the landscape uh, experience, this is the seismic shaking, there's a massive acceleration, gravitational acceleration in the slopes, uh, so the slopes fail. So the, the, the signature is a huge number of landslides that form simultaneously along the central part of the Alpine Fault, that corridor that runs through Westland. Mm. And then the lakes tell us that for the next 50 years, there's a massive sediment bulge that comes out of the rivers that drain the Alpine Fault area. So not only have you got the seismic shaking associated with the Alpine Fault to deal with and the disruption that it causes on infrastructure and people who live next to it, but you've probably got, in terms of planning, you've got to plan for about 50 years of high sediment yields, and that probably means that it's going to be difficult to maintain bridges over that 50-year period, and it almost certainly means there's a major dislocation for agricultural activities, um, and mm. the tourism industry is going to be severely affected as well. Is is this a, um, is there like a prediction for this to come well, into fruition? Um, Not that we want to manifest this. It, it's quasi-periodic. It's not exactly, mean? yeah, it, it means that it's not like a clock. It doesn't rupture every 300 years or so, but it's pretty close to 300 years. Okay. So and the last time was 1717 AD. So okay. it doesn't take much of a genius in terms of mathematics to work out that we would, well, how I would put it is that yeah. we're late in the seismic cycle. There's a good chance that in your lifetime, you'll see the product of an alpine fault rupture. Maybe even my lifetime. Yeah. Yeah. I just hope that that's not the case. Oh. There's some places you don't want to be. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And 
as a geologist, so we've been learning a lot about how community and care for a land would reflect, I guess, the well-being of a land or the health of a land. Um, how do you think local communities have an effect on what you study and research? Okay. Well, I'll step back to your previous question to yep. answer that. You asked me about Sorry. lake sediments. Okay. So I described one dimension of working deeper in time. There's another project that's uh, MBIE fund funded now, the Ministry of Business Educa uh, Innovation and uh, um, Enterprise. Uh, and they've funded a project called Lakes 380. And they've, uh, the government's put about $13 million into it. And it's called Lakes 380 because 380 is 10% of the lakes in New Zealand. So there's about 3,800 lakes over mm -hmm. about a hectare. And Lakes 380 is aimed at understanding the status of the modern lakes and how they got into that position, into that condition that they are at the moment. And it's future-focused in the sense that It's uh, aimed at if we need to uh, rehabilitate some of these lakes, it's the question is what condition do you want to rehabilitate them into? So that that mm -hmm. is a, a piece of work that is aimed at understanding uh, lakes kind of at that community level, which has been really fascinating for me um, because we got involved in the uh, North Island leg of this. So it took us and our coring equipment out of the South Island and we worked in uh, the Hawke's Bay and the Central Lakes area in Rotorua and then out in Taranaki for mm -hmm. a little while. Um, and the difference between how the communities are interacting with their lakes is enormous. The South Island, uh, we, uh, I, I, I think the, the population density is lower and I would say by and large we're not as engaged with our lakes as uh, um, perhaps people who are working, are working and living in those communities. The example I can give you is the Ta'arawa Lakes Trust, um, who it's it's the iwi and the, the central part of the North Island that are looking after those lakes, Rotawiti, uh, Rotorua, etc. Um, and they are highly engaged with their lakes. They see the lakes as their past. It was a source of kai. Um, and they see the lakes as the future. And some of the lakes are not in particularly good condition there. So they're highly engaged with it. So that was an opportunity for us to actually engage with the local communities and take them along in the fieldwork that we were doing so that they had an understanding of how we did it and the questions that we were asking about the lakes um, and where we were going to end up uh, with that data. So In that, in that sense, there's an example of a community being highly focused. And they had mm. the skills and the resources to do it as well. Like we could see that from the people that we were engaging with, they sent some of the young people out with us. They'd invested in those young people. They'd gone to university, mostly at Waikato in Auckland, and then can then come back into that local community. And they were working for the Ta'arawa Lakes Trust. And they were kind of the future guardians of the lake. It was really So you're kind of saying see. that the... Um, the lakes in the South Island are not used less, but they're a little bit more protected and a little bit more. They have people who are kind of involved with, I don't know, using them. And they have a different sort of status. I wouldn't say that people are disinterested. There's the, yeah. the guardians um, of the Southern Lakes, for example, and there's a group that work with uh, Lake Wanaka in particular. Um, they're really concerned about um, uh, of the lake. Uh, But I don't think the level of engagement was quite as high as I experienced in the North Island. It was kind of what it could be, you know, that's what it was for me. Um, and, and maybe that's coming, I, I think, as well. Because it's that actually the whole um, area in 
the uh, like Topor and the Rotorua area, there's that whole kind of iwi debate whether that land should be. Did you look, like ever look into that? Whether the whole land should be either iwi or they should be the like you um, could tourism see that, or you could see there are massive tensions there. Yeah, um, like uh, there's a couple of the lakes uh, there that. Uh, 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 managed by the Tarawa Ta Lakes Trust, uh, but the trajectory of uh, land ownership has been such that you know there are these around some of the lakes there is these little enclaves of multi-million-dollar houses that sit mm -hmm. on the lake. So some of the land has gone; it's in a different form of ownership now, and there's not an easy way back from that. You yeah. you, you can't turn the clock back. Um, and I guess what we were doing is that we were looking at how the trajectory of those lakes, how the water quality has been changed over time. Like the extreme example I can give you is if we, when we were working out in the Hawke's Bay is that we were looking at these little lakes, the, the Tinaroto Lakes, if people know it, um, in land of uh, Gisborne, um, and they're on, uh, they're on agricultural land at the moment and a lot of them aren't even fenced. And all of the lakes that were, in, were experiencing a toxic algal bloom, they were bright green, and the last thing you wanted to do was get out of the boat. <laughs> um, you didn't want to fall into the, these lakes. They were absolutely gross. Um, but, you know, um, uh, so there's a, an, out, an example of a bad outcome. The land use hasn't been great. It hasn't been favourable to a, a good lake health, if you want to put it mm. like that. Mm. Ones in Rotorua, around Rotorua, they're actually in pretty good, uh, pretty good nick. And the ones in the South Island of New Zealand, by and large, are in reasonable shape. I know there's some compromise in water quality and some introduced species, species problems as well. I'm kind of wondering about what might cause that contrast in care, if you will, for the lakes. So perhaps have you noticed anything or a, a perception or a way that people think about the land in an example of this lake you're talking about that's green and not appearing to be very healthy compared to maybe Lake Taupo and Rotorua where it appears to be in great care and there's a lot of people that are invested in it. Mm. What might be a difference? One of the differences is scale. So the Tinaroto lakes that I mentioned are all tiny little lakes that uh, are inside farms that are privately owned. Um, so although there's still iwi attachment to those lakes, um, they haven't been looked after. They're small, whereas the bigger lakes, I think they are, they're more in our psyche. They're they're there, they're, and they've been better looked after. Quite a few of them are like almost tourist attractions, and because of that, if they're not kept look like looked after, then they wouldn't be considered like I don't know worthy of being a tourist attraction. Yeah. So it's yeah. kind of almost a positive. I always I always remember like the kind of how tourism is ruining our environment. I mean, maybe in some cases, but it kind of sound like it's helping the quality of our. Water, yeah, and, and some of the catchments of, uh, like so a lot of the big South Island lakes are in catchments that uh, haven't got a strong imprint from humans in them. Um, there's uh, low intensity agriculture around them, maybe, but some of them don't even have agriculture around them at all. If you can think of uh, lakes like lakes Tianao and Manapuri and Monawai, etc. They're, they're still in forested catchments, so the water quality is high. There's been very low imprint of humans over the time. And there... They're iconic lakes in the sense that they're great tourist attractions. And then there's kind of lakes that sit in the middle as well, um, like 
uh, Lake Wanaka, which uh, is completely surrounded with agriculture, although the agriculture is relatively low density compared to some of the lakes that I described uh, just before, say, on in uh, um, in the Hawke's Bay. Yeah. yeah. <coughs> That's kind of interesting. I like that. That's kind of like the more... Um, responsibility you have for these lakes, the better quality they have, and they're kind of just left aside in someone's. Or was it actually? Here's another question to lead on: Is it because of the agriculture that the lakes being damaged, or is it because of another like reason? Was it the largely? Uh, it's it's land use change that's the really big one. Yeah, yeah? it changes the nutrient flux uh, uh, that I think the catchments, uh, and it changes the sediment flux as well. And part of changing the nutrients is, of course, with a goes alongside with agricultural in New Zealand. It's entirely based on the use of fertiliser uh, and the, the by-products of fertiliser end up in the lake. So, you know, one of the questions that comes up, if you, we are going to uh, rehabilitate a lake of of this, this, this particular lake, for example, the question is, what are we rehabilitating it to? What condition are we re- rehabilitating it? And that's where the study is somewhat historical, right? It's based on cores from the lakes, so we can date those cores and look at the characteristics of the sediment and read from some of those characteristics what was. the state of the lake was actually like. And it's not a simple question in, in many ways because the state of those lakes has changed as land use has changed. You, you can read the imprint of Polynesians when they arrive in the landscape. You can read the imprint of um, Europeans when they arrive in the landscape. And the rate of change increases, of course, when Europeans arrive. The intensity of the farming often goes up for, for some of these areas. So the question is, what state do you bring it back to? Do you bring it back to uh, a pre um, Polynesian state, even then it's a complicated question because those lakes uh, fluctuate in their status as well because the natural I mean, pulse kind of, of like the landscape is there. Would it be worth there? it if it's already still in an area where it's going to be heavily affected by fertiliser and ag- agriculture? And, Definitely. Um, yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, the, the, I guess the rational approach to that is if you value a lake and you do want to rehabilitate it, you have to change the things that are going wrong. That's right. Um, for that lake, and if it's in an agricultural area and a lot, there's a lot of effluent from the agricultural agricultural area, you have to have a way of mitigating that so mm. that it doesn't reach the lake. What if instead of looking at an external boundary point, like oh, when it's up to this level and when it's looking like this, is when we know we've successfully ticked the box. It is conserved. We have done our conservation. I'm wondering if in a an input approach, like how could we make this lake just put the best quality into it compared to like an external visual thing? I'm not sure. I, kind of I, I think you. I, I would translate your question as the environmental standard that you have for the lake and yeah. the lake water. And, and we, do, we do have relatively new environmental standards in New Zealand. You might remember the debate around, was, around whether the water was swimmable or whether it was wadeable. Does that ring a bell? You know, whether it was safe to actually swim in the water. Well, that's a relatively high water quality. Um, but if it's not safe to swim in, can you wade in the water without uh, a health uh, outcome? Uh, a, a negative health mm. outcome for you. So those environmental standards are kind of there in our legislative framework now. Um, yeah. If I was to sort of stand back from that, I'd, uh, I think the question that we have is how we actually enforce those environmental standards. And the problem mm. there is that there are competing uses for the water. 
um, and in many uh, local authorities in New Zealand. Um, I'm getting out of my area of expertise now. It seems like the water is over-allocated, that it's over-allocated for irrigation purposes, for example, and there's not enough water in the the streams that drain into some of these lakes to maintain um, a high water quality. So I think we're coming Mm. to grips with that. Um, yeah. where I think we're a bit casual about water use in New Zealand generally because we have been blessed with really excellent water resources by and large. Yeah. Yeah. But you can you can see that's changing. It's certainly changed in my lifetime. Yeah. Um, is there a way to actually this this may be like a question you don't really know the answer to, but it kind of interests me. Um, how do they actually change the water quality? Do they just replace it? Do they filter it or? Well, um, the water cycles quite fast, right? It yep. uh, uh, um, comes out of the ocean, into the atmosphere, onto the land, runs through the soils, over the, uh, through the vegetation. So if, if you actually change what you've done in terms of land use... Just block off all yeah, the waste. If you change the amount of superphosphate or, yep. um, uh, or other fertilisers that you put on that land... Man wants nitrogen. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of nitrogen-based yeah. fertiliser that's the basis of New Zealand agriculture. If you... If you diminish the amount of nitrate-based fertiliser that you put on that land, you do improve the water quality. There might be a time lag in doing that, but there's no doubt that it has a direct effect. So, oh, cool. so, so the, you just leave it for kind yeah. of Mother Nature to, yeah. to herself. Yeah, so you, but you have to make yeah. the change yeah. to do it. You know? Stopping our impacts yeah. to yeah. help us. Yeah, and there's that balance between you know the agricultural systems are there for a reason, and it's food production. You know, So you're balancing up... Um, uh, water quality versus agricultural production, uh, and so there's there's a difficult choice in there. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, completely changing the subject here. This is kind of a subject I'm interested in. I have always been in action high school. Um, your story is similar to mine. I used to love geography, and I had a really really cool geography teacher in high school. I didn't continue with it. I still I I do energy science, so it's kind of the most geography part of physics that I could get. But um, the one of the things we looked at, and it's probably the one of the own, only um, things I remember, is that glaciers make a U-shape and rivers make a V-shape. And whenever anyone talks about geography, it's the only thing I can really input into the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and saying that leads me to my next question, and is that how do you reckon now glaciers in New Zealand are going to um, going to change in the next couple of years? Because definitely seen some changes. Well, an unkind person once said to me when I was working more in glaciology uh, than anything else, he said that uh, um, that's the discipline without a future. The the glaciers are diminishing uh, in mass and in volume and in area all over the world at the moment. And uh, in New Zealand, it's one-way traffic. Um, Again, in your lifetime, you are going to see massive changes in the amount of snow-covered area in New Zealand such that by the time you're my age, you'll have a, probably have a ski industry that's maybe not even viable. Uh, yep. the, the glaciers are diminishing in size all, all over the world. Yeah. Like Franz. Franz Joseph's an example, right? Yep, it is. So it's a really good example. Yeah, but those glaci- glaciers on the west coast, they fluctuate quite a bit because of, they're partly driven by um, the amount of uh, snow that goes into them, the amount of precipitation. So that varies over time as well. Uh, but it's the temperature change that's caught up with them now. And it's one-way traffic for the demise of the terminus position or the retreat of the terminus position of the two iconic ones there, Franz Joseph and Fox Glacier. They've retreated quite a bit to the point that they're actually quite difficult to get onto now for a day walk. 
what were their cycles kind of like before climate change like hit them so hard oh yeah so uh if we go back to uh so i can put this in the broader context of the one of the drivers of climate change and we have to look at the amount of uh, greenhouse gases in the atmosphere um, co2 and methane primarily uh, so the long-term cycles over uh, say the last or million years or so is that we had these uh, uh, relatively short interglacial events and long glacial events, cold events um, worldwide where the glaciers expanded and then they contracted during the interglacial events. So in terms of our, our context now, um, so a, as an indicator of that, um, sometimes it's following it and sometimes it's driving it, um, CO2 and methane concentrations went up and down. And we have a really good archive of the CO2 and methane concentrations in the past. That's a different story, though. Um, it's the long ice cores that's come from, that have come from Antarctica and Greenland. So those values went up and down and they were followed by temperature changes. So we're in a, an interglacial now. Um, so we've been in this interglacial for the last 12,000 years, so a period where the glaciers were relatively small on the Earth. Um, but um, we, humans, have changed the atmospheric gas composition quite substantially since the Industrial Revolution. And we're in a situation now where the amount of CO2 and methane in the atmosphere is way higher than it was at any stage in the last million years. Well, it's only way increasing. Higher. Yeah, it's so, increasing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's the heat wait the gases make the, the world kind of warm up overall because I thought it gets colder in the winter so. yeah yeah sure there's there's uh, there's cycles on top of those cycles yeah. yeah so the cycles that drive it are Milankovitch cycles this mm. is the geometry of the reaching into your physics your environmental physics here this is the geometry of the solar system uh, yeah. our, our orbit around the the um, uh, uh, the sun so for example one of the long period cycles is the eccentricity of the orbit. So we go from an almost circular orbit to an almost elliptical orbit over a period that has a periodicity of about 96,000 years. Okay, and, there's, mm. and then there's a variation in the, the uh, wobble of the Earth's axis and the tilt of the Earth's axis as well, which they have much lower periodicities. That changes a lot more frequently. Yeah, sure. but still long, yeah. th 30,000 years or so. Yeah. So what, what they actually do is that they change the they don't change the amount of annual solar radiation. That's the same, right? Uh, but it changes where it actually uh, is, is, it changes its geographical distribution. Yeah. And it's thought to be the northern hemisphere Atmosphere high latitudes that are really sensitive to those changes, and once you actually are in a cycle where it's a high eccentricity, so the northern hemisphere's winter is when it's a long way away from the sun. Um, you have conditions that are conducive to the build-up of seasonal snow that eventually leads to glaciation. Um, and um, that's hooked up with the CO2 concentrations as well, which are primarily held in the oceans. So you go into these big glacial interglacial cycles. So, um, uh, yeah, so it's driven by the Milankovitch cycles. Their main imprint, uh, the, the main uh, area where it's changing is the northern hemisphere, but it's a, of global significance. And it happens that the big glaciers, all the big changes during the glaciations are all in the northern hemisphere anyway. It's the big ice sheets that aren't there anymore. It's the Scandinavian ice sheet, it's the Laurentide ice sheet that formed on the northern part of North America and flowed down into the Midwest states of the United States, and, uh, and an ice cap that formed on the Russian coastal plain. Uh, they've gone now, 
so sea levels up because they've gone and when they're when they're in their configuration of being expanded sea levels way down so there's a global influence through sea level there so we're in a super interglacial now right so the co2 methane concentrations are way higher than the last million years so it's extremely unlikely that we're going to go back into our glaciation we're experience we're in a no analog position in many ways are we meant to be in that position like if humans weren't there would we still would the glaciers still kind of be depleting out the glaciers would be coming back at some stage if we hadn't intervened in the system and that's why where we have the super interglacial condition so i think we've disrupted the the long-term behavior of the system that's a bit of a guess because we're talking about hundred thousand year cycles here but yeah yeah um in terms of health impacts or environmental outcomes um, I guess is there anything that we could be thinking about or implementing to mitigate some of the worst effects of climate change and of glacials melting that we could do right now? Yeah, I think there's a couple of big ones. Um, what, there's the temperature side, right? What happens a, as we increase um, the average temperature from our conditions over the last hundred years or so? Uh, and into the conditions we're experiencing now in the next 100 years. So there's an average temperature change, but the problem is is as you actually change from one set of conditions to another, um, the likelihood of extreme events increases. So we're going to see um, probably um, more floods, higher magnitude floods. Um, we'll get more visits from uh, extratropical cyclones that slip out of the tropics and down and affect the, the North Island. So that's a big one to come to grips with. But the, the sleeping giant in there that's a real problem for New Zealand is sea level rise. And that was, is biting us in the ass now. And, and if, if we, don't, if we not, don't get clever about what to do about it, um, we're going to end up with a bit of a disaster with houses falling into the sea. So that is something we can plan okay. for. The scenarios are relatively well known about, you know, particularly the mass loss that gre- the Greenland ice sheets are experiencing now. We know the likely outcome of the rate of sea level rise, but I don't see a lot of traction in terms of what's happening at the moment. And if we don't do anything about it, the worst case scenario is that um, what, what will happen, what will drive it, is the insurance companies will change their premiums for people who are exposed to that hazard along the coast. And ultimately, those properties will become uninsurable. And then people won't live there anymore. Mm. So we can do something coherent about it before then, right? In terms of would managing. It be more migrating to more. It's got inland. to be, yeah. yeah. There's, there's some areas where there's almost no option and that you've got to move away and from the coast. And where would that have to happen? It's got to start happening now. We're overdue for it. I mean, the the flooding problem in South Dunedin is endemic. There's and a problem there. And there's a huge there. one in Christchurch, wasn't it? Yeah, Christchurch yeah. is low-lying yeah, as well. And yeah. uh, you've, so the scenario you have to ask yourself is what happens to the coastline position as the sea level rises? Well, it comes inland. It, yeah. you, can't, you can't change that. It's literally holding back the tide. Yeah. There's some technological things you can do. If you've got really high-value property, like if it's a city, you can have engineered defences. But, you know, for a lower-value property, you've got to pay for those defences somehow. And you can't defend all of the coastline with uh, concrete. With sandbags. (laughs) Is that still going to happen, like, even if we fix our emissions? Because we're kind of already at that state. Like, if we, if theoretically we kind of, like, our emissions died off by 2030 would we still be 
an estate where we'd need a migrate. Well, the way I see it, our emissions aren't likely to die off by yeah, 2030. That's, that's um, true. But even if they did, you know, if you meet, if we reached the uh, Paris Accords targets, yeah. the trouble is we're dealing with systems that have long time delays in them. There are lags in these systems, and there's some change that we're in for, no matter what we do now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, it, it, just because we're changing the emissions isn't a reason not to do something about some of these environmental problems that are kind of secondary to the the temperature problem. Yeah, well, we've dug ourselves Thank a, you. a big hole. Yeah, we Thank have you, dug Sean, ourselves for, a hole <laughs> for enlightening us on this. I think we have, but equally, we just can't do anything but keep going. You know, change our change yeah. our practice. Recognize what we're doing. Recognize how it's becoming a problem. Yep. And then, like you said, do something about it in yep. action. Well, I, I have a view on that too, I'll share yeah. with you. Um, if you if you look at human history, um, we're not good at changing. We're, we're very not, really bad at it. Um, but we're a really elastic species as well. I mean, we when forced and confronted with change, we can change. Some of that is behavioural change, how we actually behave, what we do. And some of it is technological change, and we're quite good at doing that as well. So I remain quite positive because I think humans like are innovating. It's doing an assignment on the last day. <laughs> like they won't leave it <laughs> to the much. last day. But yeah. the right yeah. last using the crisis as motivation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Diamonds made under pressure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that's good. We would all put it together at the end. On that note, thank you so much for coming in and talking to us today and sharing all of your wisdom and knowledge. And it was incredibly inspiring for our students to have guest lecturers come on and share how they got to where they were, what they're working on, and how students can then like fit themselves into the current real-world issues. Like, it's really valuable. So thank you. Oh, you're most welcome. Nice conversation. Yeah, no, that was so much fun. I really enjoyed that. and It was really interesting. And thanks to everyone who submitted their votes. For yes, yeah. people's yeah. choice. Yeah. If you exciting. guys would do that, we wouldn't have met them. So, um, Yay, popular. Yes, <laughs> geography <favorite>. rocks. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, and thank, thank you. you so much, everybody, for listening and supporting the show. We would not be a show without people listening along to it. So we really appreciate it and all the inputs and feedback that we've had. Yeah, it's really valuable. Before we sign it. off, would you like to say anything? Oh, no. I think uh, geography rocks. Geography Rocks. Summarised it. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. That's good fun. Go to the Geography Department. All right, cheers, guys. We'll see you cool. in two weeks. See you later. Yeah, g'day, mate. You're listening to a Radio 191 FM pod